Hey everybody, it's Chris with the Running Rogue podcast coming to you from Austin, Texas. I've got Steve with me here. Hey Steve. Hey, hey, hey. This is episode nine of the Running Rogue podcast. We have a very special guest joining us, the pride of Plano, Texas, Scott McPherson, affectionately known as Scotty Mack from, for the Rogue community. He's dialing in to us from Columbia, Missouri. Hey Scotty. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. Good to have you on. We're going to be interviewing Scott as we go into our main topic today. So we'll get more into introducing him in just a second. But we wanted to start today by talking about our introductory topic on current events as we always do. We're going to talk about this Nitro Athletics series happening in Melbourne, Australia. It's headlined by Usain Bolt. Clearly he's got some financial stake in it. And it's an attempt... To, to basically reformat a track meet into a team format. And not many may have heard about it, about it since it's happening on the other side of the globe, but there's a series of three or four dates where basically six teams of 24 athletes are competing in a series of events that are kind of track and field-ish, but with twists, many of the events. So there's things like the Elimination Mile, where... I believe they had six athletes lined up, and whoever's last after every lap gets pulled from the meet and until there's three athletes left on that last lap gunning for the win. And effective, that sounds kind of interesting and cool if you think about someone racing a mile normally, but the practical application of that kind of a format is that everybody slows down for the first part of the lap and then sprints to the bell or to the to the, to the uh, lap counter, so they're not pulled from the meet. And so you get this kind of start-stop, fast-slow format from lap to lap. That's kind of interesting. You've also got a 4 by one mixed relay. So Usain Bolt was handing off to the female 200-meter runner from the U.S., Jenna Prandini from University of Oregon. And you had a hurdle relay where... On the straightaway, they were doing hurdles sort of back and forth. I think there were three athletes per team, and so you had three stretches of 100-meter hurdles run. There was a three-minute run where whoever could run the farthest in three minutes got points for their team. And then the javelin in a twist had an accuracy component. So you were throwing not only for distance, but also if you landed within a target, you got more points for your team. So... Track and field with the twist. I know the stadium was a relatively small stadium in Australia. It was sold out, 7,000 plus fans. They also have a TV deal on it. And so this is sort of a test format to see if we can get more interest in track and field by changing things up. Steve, I'll turn it to you. What do you think? Is this just a gimmick or is this something cool that might actually draw more fans? It's a circus. I, it's just ridiculous. <clears throat> I'm a, I just kind of think... What's wrong with the state of track and field today that we've got to maybe we should throw in the egg toss and maybe <laughs> do the uh, wheelbarrow run or something else. It's just to me, track and field is already a beautiful sport. It already has so many components going for it um, to confuse the general public, to create a, uh, a circus type environment is not in and of itself a bad idea, but I just think that. We already have enough drama in a hundred, in a two hundred, in a four by one, in a fifteen hundred. I just don't get the value of um, 
this kind of format other than some producer somewhere, some event producer trying to make money. And um, I don't I don't that's my view on it. I think it's ridiculous. I would prefer time and energy be spent uh, maybe on trying to market a more a shorter, more concise track and field meet or to, uh, you know, I was a collegiate coach for eight years. And during that time frame, we talked at almost every single one of our national coaches meetings about how we can make track and field more interesting to the general public. And I do think it's great for people to think outside the box. But to me, this is just a joke. Well, I, I sort of agree. I think this is probably an excuse for Bolt to hang out in Australia for a couple of weeks. With Jenna Prandini. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and, and if you look at some of the unique formats for meets in the U.S., uh, maybe not necessarily unique, but the meets that draw a lot of fans, thinking about pin relays and Texas relays here, the Prefontaine Classic in Oregon, those are meets that have traditional events but still draw sold-out crowds on many of their days because they're interesting, they're fun, they get people into the stories of the athletes that are there. So I, I agree. Why do you have to throw in the gimmicks? Why can't you just have a traditional track meet? But maybe change the format slightly to make it more interesting, fast moving and fun, but without changing the rules, without changing the, the events themselves. Scotty, you're an elite athlete who has done, gosh, probably hundreds of track meets. So what's your take on this nitro format? Um, you know, I agree with both of you guys. I, I also have to say that I disagree in the fact I like the way that they're thinking outside of the box. I think that's something track and field might need. Uh, you know, you guys made a good point with pen relays, uh, with the European uh, track meets. They run a lot faster. They're regular formatted track meets, but they're more entertaining. I think one thing that pen relays does is they incorporate things like the shuttle hurdle uh, relay, and they incorporate, you know, the 100-year-old plus 100-meter dash, which is what maybe the coolest race I've ever seen in my entire life. And uh, they have little kids races going on in the infield while there's a relay going on on the track. It's just much more entertaining. Or you watch a meet in Europe, you know, uh, like Bisley Games or, uh, you know, any, any of the European Diamond League meets, and they are so entertaining to watch on TV. I could sit here for four hours in an afternoon and watch track and field every second of it, Whereas if I watch an American broadcast, I get bored and I start fast-forwarding through, you know, long-distance events, and I'm a, I'm a marathoner, for God's sake. So it, it, it hurts me that uh, the way we broadcast track and the way we put on meets here is just so kind of dull and uh, mundane. It, there's, there's no excitement when there's 200 heats of the 200-meter dash, you know? You lose a lot of the intrigue when um, you, you cut to commercial during the 10K instead of showing the javelin, the long jump, and the hurdles, you know, in between. You could, you could show a lot more, and uh, I think that that's where they're trying to go with this, and I kind of like the way they're headed, but I also agree that it's a, maybe a little too outlandish, and it, it takes away from the beauty of track and field. So Craig Mazback isn't doing it for you on those distance events? <laughs> All right. Uh, you know some of those guys can, can really call the race. Some of them need a little practice, but uh, maybe I can help them out one day. We'll see. So if the Nitro format isn't the answer, you know, Nick Simmons is famous for saying they need beer and gambling at track meets. What do you guys think? So we'll start with you, Steve, on what are ways to spice up a track meet to make it more interesting for the fans? I, I think, first of all, you need – to shorten the duration of the meet and you need to make a meet have a purpose. So 
Um, you know, back in the day, they used to have dual meets, and it would be two teams going against each other in a variety of different events. Sometimes they would even not do all the events because of only having two people. I mean, only two teams in the in it. Um, but I think shortening the meet and then creating a winner or a loser or a team element is also an important part of at least the way Americans consume their television. Um, and the way they consume their sports is a winner and a loser. And I think that that's an important part that is really missing from our current model. There's a winner of the individual race, but there's not a winner of, an, a, of a track meet. And I think that if there was one, um, then that would work. You know, back in the 80s and 90s when NBC or CBS would show the NCAA championships, they always did a really good job of highlighting that team challenge and the team title. And I don't know why, but it just seems like they've moved away from sort of highlighting the fact that there was something, some meaning in the 5,000 meter race as it went on, as it, as, as it played out in the team results. And so the 200 meter dash that comes right after the 5k has the ability to suddenly have a lot more import in terms of what's going on in the context of the track meet. So, and then you go to the four by four, you can add that element. The other thing I would say is, so the first was shortening it. Number two, making it a team event. And, and number three, I think that we've got to try to figure out some way to get the major sports network interested. So ESPN in some way, shape or form has got to, we've got to somehow get them to the table to get it in back in the consciousness beyond the four year cycle of the Olympic cycle and get people talking about it and people paying attention to it. And telling the stories. What about you, Scotty? What do you think? I completely agree with Steve. I think that, uh, you know, making the meets more concise would be a huge benefit. Um, you know, the average sporting event in the U.S. is going to be run about two hours long, and sometimes those track meets can just be, you know, four or five hours plus, especially when they're trying to broadcast them in three hours. They're cutting the commercials. You're missing good stuff. You know, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is if they're showing the Boston Marathon, they cut away for a commercial, and they come back, and the leaders are completely different. And it's like, what what happened? There was a move, like the biggest move in the entire race, and you just missed it. I think the, the way that they're they're putting on the the meets on TV is just kind of hurting uh, the sport a little bit, like I said earlier. But, uh, you know, I, I think that gambling and drinking would be a blast. Why not? Everyone loves to go to a football game and tailgate and bet on their team. I mean, why not? If we're going to take ourselves seriously like a, an actual sport, we should, you know, be treated like that. I know in Europe there is gambling on track meets, and I think it's a pretty successful little uh, side side uh, business. So why not? You know, when I was at the 2008 Olympic trials, um, I was able to go primarily. I had some coaching duties at that event, but not many. But I had um, an opportunity to sit with my very best friend, Adam Daly, in the stands. He's another Arkansas Razorback. Scotty can give a little shout out to him. <laughs> but uh, we sat in the stands and we're at on the backstretch of um, Hayward Field where there's so many knowledgeable track and field fans. And he and I would just banter back and forth amongst ourselves tell, talking to our me to Ruth um, and he to his wife Jessica about what was actually happening in the meet and oh look at the look at the long jump this is this is who this person is and this is a little bit of the story that's going on because we had a lot of insights and had he, he had just recently finished his running career and I was in the coaching ranks and so I knew a lot of these people and we were able to discuss sort of what the drama was that was happening um, as it was playing out and after about three days of standing in the stands we had about 15 to 20 people literally crowding around us listening to us going back and forth about pontificating about what was happening in each one of the different events. And to me, it just highlighted how how poorly 
um, we commentate and create the circus kind of environment that track and field really should be. I, I, I alluded early on about it being circus being negative. But I really think the circus is exactly what we should be shooting for, where you've got Barman Bailey's three ring circus. As soon as one thing ends, another thing's going on. You've got the you've got things happening one right after the other. And then having capable commentators who know what's going on with the personalities and the people and the drama in happening in a pole vault or a long jump or a, or, or an 800 meter dash is absolutely critical, as you alluded to. Uh, Chris, telling the story. We are addicted as humans to storytelling, and if we can tell the story, it will work. But I think the American public is better is better served than telling us the entire backstory of someone's entire life. It'd be better to tell us the story of what's happening on that track at that moment with the competitors competing. Yeah, give people context. I'll never forget probably my favorite track and field moment in person was watching the trials in two, 2012 at Hayward. And I'm not a javelin fan. I've never paid attention. I don't know what good is when <laughs> when it comes to javelin, but the announcers there do a good job of educating the crowd of what's going on. The crowd also knows what's going on. And at the time, the guy in the lead in the javelin didn't have the Olympic standard. So he needed to throw the Olympic standard on his last throw in order to qualify for the Olympics. Otherwise, the next three people in, in the rankings for that event would have gone. And so the crowd became aware of this, and it was a damp, kind of coolish night, so not a great night for throwing the javelin. But the crowd became aware, and as he prepared for his next throw, everybody got into it, started clapping and cheering this guy on. And then he made the throw. You could tell from having watched a few throws at that point that it was a good throw and that it went a long way, but he didn't know how far and if it would have met the standard. And by that point, we had all sort of know we knew what he needed to get to the Olympics and so we were all watching that digital board that flashes the distance once the measurement is done and well first you all screamed and, and, and yelled as you passed. as you saw yeah. the, the throw unleashed and realizing there was a chance that that yes. was going to happen so the entire crowd is now riveted to this yeah, and everybody knew it was board. close and he all like he, he probably got it but we weren't sure and then the the distance flashed and we saw that he achieved the standard and he and he went crazy. The crowd went crazy. And we were all Javelin fans for a period of five to ten minutes watching this story play out. And and I've never <laughs> I've never appreciated Javelin until that moment. And, and I think anybody who was there could have appreciated it if they had just followed the story. So I agree with you. Tell the stories. Give us context. Tell us what we're seeing. And don't just assume that because it's people running on a track, it's going to be boring. Well, make it interesting. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, javelin's javelin, not cornhole. I mean, it's basically like what they're doing is making javelin to cornhole. And I'm sorry, but I can have a couple of beers in my belly and throw a, a sand, a little, a little sand thing in, into a into a hole, and that's not what we're talking about with sport, in my opinion. So, all right, so we'll move on into our our interview here with Scotty. We will get. I'll give you a little bit more context for the, for the rogues listening. They all know who Scott McPherson is he was a longtime rogue athletic club member and a coach of ours as well as a marketing team member for a long time here in austin and has since moved on to columbia missouri where he resides with his wife casey joe who coaches gymnastics there at the university scott has a, a an illustrious resume i'll give some highlights he's most most recently an elite level marathoner but he started out as a cross country and track star in high school with 
I think four state titles, if I'm right, two from cross and two from track. Is that right, Scotty? That is correct. Four state titles. He went on to be a two-time All-American in cross country at the University of Arkansas and also ran the steeplechase there, amongst other things. And then since has been training as a professional athlete and runner, starting with Rogue AC here in Austin, but then has moved around a little bit uh, with his wife and travels over the last few years. He has run a 214 marathon PR, which just happened at CIM a few months back in 2016, but has also finished top 20 at the Boston Marathon and beat Ryan Hall, I believe, that year by a handful of seconds. <laughs> so he's bested one of America's finest. So anyway, welcome, Scotty. Your reputation precedes you, at least here. Well, thank you, guys. It's, it's awesome to be here, and uh, I was really excited to get, have this opportunity to chat with you guys. I love the podcast. It's awesome. Thank you, sir. So as we jump into this, I know you've been running for a long time, You know, starting early, early uh, growing up there in Plano. But tell us how you got into running and a little bit about the story of starting at out. Sure. Uh, well, my dad was a, a very, very good high school and uh, like about a year in college runner. But he was very good in the seventies. Um, he was a nine oh five two miler in high school, which is pretty awesome even by today's standards. And this is you know forty years ago. So um, it, you know, I always looked up to him. I always saw his yearbooks and his medals and his trophies and I always thought that was awesome so I always had an interest for it and um I kind of I think it started with a love for endurance I remember just putting on like my rollerblades and going as fast and far as I could around the neighborhood and then I'd time it and like okay I can do it again faster and I just had this love for competition and speed and and endurance and I loved the lactic burn so I think it kind of started there and then we took the pacer test which I think they still do in Texas uh, elementary schools but basically, uh, you know, you have to run back and forth in a gymnasium in between the beeps on a uh, tape recorder. And I remember I was doing it with my class, and everyone kept getting tired, but I didn't understand because I wasn't even close to tired. <laughs> so I didn't want to be weird, so I actually pretended to be tired. And I remember, like, looking around and bending over and pretending to breathe heavy, but in reality I was feeling pretty spry. So, um that that I think is when I kind of realized like wow maybe I'm better at this running thing than most people but um it actually didn't take uh take more form until uh high school I needed a PE credit and I'd never thought about running cross country I just always thought it was kind of cool that my dad did it um but in order to graduate I needed to either take physical education or run cross country so I chose cross country and uh I trained for the first time in my life we we ran like middle school track but it wasn't really training we just basically got together on tuesday with other schools and raced a mile or an 800 or a 400 so that i never really considered the beginning of my running career um but uh I, you know that first year in high school i actually trained we were doing like four miles in the morning doing a couple miles in the afternoon and i rapidly progressed to the point where um, I won my first cross country meet by a few minutes, and uh, ever since then, I kind of was like, "Wow, that that was awesome!" I, I worked hard, and then came away with a win, and it doesn't get much better than that, you know. I kind of saw the the you know the rewards and you know the work and the rewards really quickly. Like, oh, okay, I put in the work and I, I got the rewards, and kind of fell in love with the sport kind of off the bat there. So. That was how I got started out, and it's just been a 
snowball in hell ever since. (laughs) Well, Scotty, tell us a little bit about um, your experience, um, sort of your your experience in those high level high school track and field meets. You were at a five A, and so you were in the big. You were racing the big boys, and um, and you won four state titles, which is really pretty impressive. I won one in my time, short time, um, and I, I had to do everything I did, I, everything in my life to try to get that one title. So getting four in those years was pretty good. Think, tell us a little bit about that experience of being a high school athlete, and then also how you transitioned that into your college search in ter- think, terms of thinking about where you might go to college. And then, um, and then we'll ask you a little bit about your, your college experience. So tell us a little bit about that transition between the high school level of of being a really good to great high school athlete in that transition to the collegiate game and, and how that, how that happened for you? Well, I think, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I tell a lot of people about how much, you know, um, visualization plays a part in running. I think everyone kind of knows that, um, you know, mentality or your, your mental aspect is so much more important a lot of times than your physical ability. But, um, uh, I, I was pretty good, obviously, that freshman year. I won JV, uh, and uh, I ended up winning a varsity meet or two. And then uh, going into my sophomore year, I broke my foot playing Frisbee. And so that was like, uh, oh, man, I could have been really good this year. But I, I kind of started to cross-train, and just every morning I'd go get on an elliptical machine for 45 minutes and just crush it. Like, I would go as hard as I could, and I'd do, like, the uphill elliptical and the downhill and just sprint for 20 minutes. And every time I did it, I would visualize beating like the best guys in the state because I was good at that time but I wasn't the best guy in the state by any means so I just wanted to be able to race them and so I would visualize running with guys like Brian Sullivan and Eric Stanley these were like the best guys in the state you know they were studs and I was I would visualize in a race and I'd see Eric Stanley's Klein you know baby blue uniform right in front of me and I'd visualize passing in the last 200 meters of a cross-country race and those were the kind of um you know, thoughts that were going through my head while I was doing this cross training. And I came out of the boot after that season, my sophomore year, and all of a sudden I was running races at regionals and I was right behind Eric Stanley and his baby boo, you know, kit. And I was like, wow, this, this is happening. I visualized this and it's, it's, it's really coming to fruition. And that was kind of the start of, you know, I was ignorant and I, and you know, Steve always says it best uh, when, when ignorance is bliss, it's just folly to be wise. So, that was me in high school. I didn't know anything about being good until maybe my junior or senior year when I had a little bit of success. But um, those first two years, I was just running with blinders on. Like, oh, okay, well, here's a race. I'm going to run as hard as I can. And most of the time, that meant I was going to, you know, push a lot of those really good guys to the finish line. And so started out not, you know, a super talent or anything. It just kind of, you know, blossomed into this, this kind of, uh, you know, the, the better, the, the harder I work, the better I got. And I just kind of grew respect for that aspect of the sport. Um, and then, you know, got pretty cocky my senior year because I was pretty awesome. And when <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, hard to beat, you know, in the state of Texas, and it, it's, it's kind of hard to stay humble. And uh, when I got to the University of Arkansas, the, the reason I chose that is because I wanted to go to a program that I was going to be on the best team with the best runners in the country and we were going to push each other to be the best and you know the year or two before i got to arkansas alistair craig and daniel lincoln not only went one two in the uh the ncaa 10k but they held hands across the finish line 
and they, they lapped second place, I think, or sorry, they lapped third place or something like that. And I was like, man, if they can be that good at Arkansas, I could be that good at Arkansas. So that was the main thing. Coach McDonald at Arkansas was the greatest coach of all time, and I wanted to be coached by the greatest coach of all time. So I, uh, I decided to go there, and the first day on campus, I got slapped across the face with a huge slice of humble pie. And it was, it was kind of that reoccurring the whole first couple of years I was at Fayetteville because, you know, it's just a different world in college running than it is in high school. And I think it was good for me. It put me in my place, and it, it made me realize, like, hey, you know, you can't just get away with running 40 miles a week and going out and racing hard. It, it's going to take a lot more than that to accomplish your goals. So John McDonald won 40 national titles. I as... think they stole one from him and said 39 <laughs> recently. But... Really? No, they stole two. He had 42. They say 40. Oh, okay. I think it's always 42 in my book. So. Okay, 40, 42 <laughs> across indoor outdoor and cross country so arguably at least the most decorated track and field high college collegiate coach of all time some people might argue others were better coaches but he was certainly the most decorated what did you learn from john mcdonald oh man well first before i say anything about coach mack i want to say real quick um you know thoughts and prayers to coach booth's family um coach booth was our jumps coach for a while when I was at Arkansas and he uh, tragically lost his wife, Mary Lee last week in an accident. So I want to say we're thinking about them, the whole Razorback family is, but, um, you know, coach Booth and coach McDonald were probably the best one, two punch in college coaching history. I mean, across any sport, across any division, nobody won more medals. Nobody won more Olympic titles or had more Olympic records. I mean, those guys were unstoppable. And, uh, I learned a lot from those guys. I was I was blessed because I've had amazing coaches all the way through my life. Um, starting out with my middle school coach, he just taught me how to love running. And then uh, my high school coach, he just taught me that, you know, he taught me that whole visualization, if you want it, believe and go get it. And uh, he's, he's just such an inspiration. I, I still keep in, in touch with both of those guys. Um, then you go to Arkansas and you have this legendary coach and you know I was in awe I mean if if coach Mack told me to take my pants off and do jumping jacks and run around the track backwards I was going to do it like I was going to do anything he said all day long uh I think the main thing he taught me is you know trust your coach and be tough he he used to say you have to build a callus to discomfort and that's what we were doing in training is you know, racing is going to be tough. Racing is going to be hard. So you have to build this callus to the paint. And if you can do that, then you can get through any race, any difficult issue. Um, you know, it, it's going to hurt for 30 minutes, but you're going to have a lifetime of telling people you won the national championship. And that's what he used to say. So I think he kind of taught me how to suffer. And um, I, I needed that, I think, because, you know, like I said, high school running wasn't that challenging. I mean, I, it was hard. I always ran hard, don't get me wrong, but... You know, I, I, I used to win a lot of races and was never really pushed to my limits. And then as soon as I got to Arkansas, man, every single day, the easy runs, the recovery runs, I was constantly being pushed to my limits, sometimes to a fault. But at the same time, I think it kind of taught me, like, you know, this is going to take some work. It's going to take some suffering and some grinding. Um, the other thing that was amazing about Coach Mack was he, uh, he used to uh, – I mean, he was a tactician. He was – the most brilliant track and field mind I've ever known. We used to sit in the stands at a race like Penn Relays, and we'd watch all the high school meets go, and 
he used to call out who was going to win the race with like before the bell lap. With like <laughs> 600 meters to go, he'd point at the guy in the blue and say, that kid in the blue in third place is going to win. Sure enough, he like outkicked everyone. And we were like, how did you know that? He's like, yeah, you could tell. Everyone else's form was breaking down. He just, he had the eye. He knew that. It was unbelievable. Um, I'll never forget when I was a sophomore, uh, indoor track when I was a sophomore. I had been working out really well and went in to have my, my pre-race talk with Coach Max, and he said, ah, kid, he had his little Irish brogue, so he was like, ah, kid, I tell you what, you're in great shape. You're going to run about 1347 to 1350. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a really narrow margin. That's a, that's a hell of a guess. And sure enough, I went out the next night and I ran 1348. So it was like he called it within – three seconds of what I was going to run. I don't know many coaches that can actually do that with confidence, you know, and, and it actually happens. But uh, it, it was pretty cool watching him. Um, you know, and Coach Booth, to the same to the same instance, Coach Booth, one of the best jumps coaches, and I'll never forget at the NCAA championships, uh, you know, the best jumpers in the country are there, and they're all long jumping, you know, out of this world. They're all, like, you know, close to the NCAA record, whatever. It's, it's huge, and this one guy just can't, finds his spot on the board and he keeps fouling and you know he keeps jumping and he just won't go very far he's jumping like 22 feet and that's nothing in NCAA men's and so he looks up at coach Booth and coach Booth says hey your problem is you're not jumping far enough (laughs) and everyone in the stands is looking like oh my god this is the best coach in the history of of track and field jumps and he's telling the guy he needs to jump farther and that kind of shows you you know sometimes your job as a coach is to just get the kid out of his own head, you know, get the athlete out of their own way. And that's some, that was the beauty of those two is that they not only were great tech, technical coaches, but they also knew how to, you know, pull your head out of your butt and, you know, look, you, you, you're ready for this. Just do it. Just stop thinking and do it. And that was what it took sometimes. But, you know, I, I think um, I understand and appreciate track a lot more from having uh, Coach McDonald as a uh, coach. You know, Scott, one of the things that's interesting about you is, um, <clears throat> you know, you ran in high school, you ran almost completely by yourself. You uh, you and I have talked occasionally about people that you were able to run with, but you pretty much ran all by yourself. Then you ran collegiately. You, you didn't have any, you ran with people all the time. Post-collegiately, for a good while, you ran with people all the time, and now you're going it all alone again. Tell me a little bit about your experience of sort of running solo and being a solo uh, sort of a sole practitioner on your own and also the experience of being on a team and in, and in most cases, as I've known, you've been a leader in that kind of role. Tell us a little bit about that experience of being both an individual running and then running in a group and that sort of how that sort of evolved in your own thinking and how it's also evolved your training. Oh, man, uh, that's, that's a tough one because, you know, there's, there's times when I, w- I was on Rogue or I was at Arkansas where I loved being on a team and it was like my favorite thing to meet up with uh, the group and go for a run um, and the accountability of having a team waiting for you is just a beautiful thing and I think people take that for granted especially in a, in a system like you know like Rogue Running that you know all the, the hundreds of people that you coach I, I wonder how many of them have ever tried to do that type of training on their own, and it, it's not the same, you know. Um, <laughs> when you don't have a coach and a team waiting for you to, to get going at 6 a.m., it's really just it, it's a lot harder to get out the door. Um, and I, I do struggle with that. I think as a marathoner now, because my runs are, are longer, and um, it, you know, it's just a lot more. I, I don't want to say I don't want this to sound bad, but the training can be mundane sometimes. 
and I, I find it hard as a marathoner to get out there alone a lot of the time and just put in the mileage. But I also think, contrarily, that's a benefit because when you race the marathon, it's just you and your head. There's nothing else. No matter if you're racing 20 guys or if you're racing 500 guys or if everyone's yelling for you, it doesn't matter if your coach is on a bicycle next to you. You have to get through the marathon yourself. And I think the solo, uh, the, you know, the solo training that I've done has definitely prepared me for that aspect of it. But um, I, I still, I found some guys, I, I found that I think I run better with at least a couple of training partners. I've thankfully found some guys here in uh, Columbia, Missouri that um, are, are pretty awesome runners. They're, they're post-collegiate guys. They ran at the University of Missouri, and um, we've been trying to hook up and run as often as possible. Um, so I'm really grateful to have those guys. I think that, if anything, it's, taught me over the years to appreciate when you have training partners and not take advantage of it because uh it, like i said it, it can be mentally taxing to get out and run 20 miles a day alone and i mean i've done that and it's not easy you know mentally or physically so um while it, it can be good i think a lot of times especially for quality like you know you're going to run faster if you got a bunch of guys to roll with and everyone's pushing each other i think that's great um and i think that a lot of times you get kind of you know you get kind of comfortable running easy when you're just on your own and it's nice to have people to push you every now and then so let's talk about your transition from college running to post-collegiate running because for a lot of runners that aspire to run post-collegiately it can be a difficult transition as they go from that structured team environment that you had with mcdonald and company at arkansas to an environment where it's less structured and you're having to maybe find motivation on your own. So talk about that transition. And then as a part of that, how you found rogue and, and tell us about your journey here. Yeah. So, you know, um, I knew I wanted to run after college and, um, after coach McDonald retired my junior year, uh, Chris Bucknam took over. And I think the best thing Buck did for me was he kind of loosened the reins a little bit. And um, so that last, you know, year and a half, I had a little more freedom to, to run easy on my easy days to maybe make my long run a little bit longer. And, you know, I talked to him and we adjusted a little bit of my training, kind of helped me prep for that post-collegiate um, switch. Uh, but, you know, it, it's hard as a post-collegiate runner to rely on a collegiate coach. And Steve knows that very well because he coached at uh, University of Texas while trying to coach, you know, a handful of, you know, prima donna you know, post-collegiate runners, and it's tough. It's tough to get to give everyone enough attention. And I think I felt at Arkansas, I was sticking around there. You know, my my current wife, she was then my girlfriend, uh, was finishing up school, and so stayed around Fayetteville and tried to train again. You know, kind of on my own at that point because everyone else was training for 5K, 10K miles, and I was training for a half marathon at the time. So it's it's hard to to get the same quality and when these guys are on the track three times a week and you need to go out and run 18 miles so um i i had a couple friends old teammates um that had i started running with rogue uh uh, team rogue at the time rogue athletic club uh and they kept kind of telling me you got to come down and check it out it's a great setup austin's awesome and i personally grew up in plano and just didn't really want to move back to Texas, to be honest with you. I, I think I was ready to kind of check out the rest of the country and live in different states, and um, I didn't think I was going to move back. But uh, Steve called me, and I remember I was in the airport, and he was telling me, hey, man, 
I remember he, I thought he sounded like a big nerd. I kind of pictured like this guy with glasses, and uh, he was like, "Hey, man, you know, you got to come down and check it out. Like, we'll fly you down." And so I, you know, I thought to myself, "I don't think I want to do this, but it will be good for me to look at how post collegiate running works and how 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 a team like that is put together. You know, the nuts and bolts of it." So uh, I agreed, and also my best friend is a graphic designer in Austin, so I was thinking, you know, two birds with one stone, I get to catch up with my buddy, I get to kind of hang out with some runners for a few days, it's a win-win, and um, I'll never forget uh, heading back up to Fayetteville after my visit, and I was thinking, oh my God, I am going to move down to Austin. Like, I did not expect it, but... You know, everything was great. Road was amazing. I love the facilities. The people there are unbelievable. And um, I loved Austin, obviously. It's hard not to. But I think the kicker for me was the conversation I had with Steve. And as an athlete, when you meet a coach that you just click with, it's hard to ignore that. It's just, I mean, as, as tacky as it sounds, it's love at first sight. Like, Steve and I, I knew it was going to work. I knew... He got me, and uh, I, I remember, I think I said, you know, whether or not I fulfill all of my goals and dreams, I think I'm going to learn a lot in this process, and he was the guy that was going to be my guide through that, and he was, so it, it was awesome. Um, I ended up moving down there. I had some really good races right off the bat, some local ones, Cap 10K, um, the IBM 10K, San Antonio Half Marathon. I was kind of on a roll for a while, and then... Um, even up to the USA Championships in the half marathon, I got sixth place and ran uh, 63.50, I think, and or 64.0 or something like that. And so it was a really good start. And, um, I, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where I don't think I was really challenged by the bulk of the uh, professional world because the more I raced, the harder it got, uh, the more guys I saw, the faster they got. And so it just turned into one of those things where, like, the, the hits kept coming. And um, it, was, it was really hard to hold my head above water for a while, but I think I've had a lot of ups and downs in six years of running professionally. And, um, I, you know, it's, I'm not where I thought I would be, but it's been a hell of a journey, and I, I have enjoyed every step of it, even the, the you know, the tragedy and the, the illness and the injury and the disappointment. You know, you got to kind of take all that, you know, with stride. And... Um, I remember after the first Olympic trials I ran in 2012, Steve said, you know, hey, you just had a big poopy sandwich, and uh, soon you're going to eat some cake, but the cake's going to taste a lot better because you just took a big bite of poopy sandwich. And I'll never forget that because, you know, unfortunately, I've eaten a lot of poopy sandwiches since then. It wasn't just, like, one poopy sandwich and then cake. So uh, I'm still uh, still waiting for my big slice of cake, I think. But I've had... I've had sniffs, you know, I've had the, uh, they let me go in the bakery and smell the cake cooking. It's just, I haven't gotten to taste it yet. So I'm waiting to feel the taste it, but I think it's going to be even sweeter having gone through so much trials and tribulations along the way. So it's, it's been rocky. It, you know, they always say the NFL is faster. The hits come harder, you know, everything's bigger and better. And I feel like that's how professional running is. Like you go into your first half marathon and you PR through the 10K, and you get 10th place in the race, and it's like, wow, that was unbelievable. I never thought that was going to happen. And that's just how every race is. I mean, it's 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 kind of mind-boggling racing some of these guys. They they are freaks of nature, and you know, it's it's fun at the same time to put yourself in a position to to butt heads with them and you know throw down. Uh, that's what I love about it. 
you always have an opportunity, you know, and, and that's why we race is because guess what? Uh, one day in April, a couple of years ago, Ryan Hall had a bad day and I got to take a pretty good scout, but you know, uh, you don't want to beat them when they have a bad day, but Hey, you'll take it when it comes. So, so uh, you brought up the you brought up uh, you called it poopy sandwich, but I know we really call it shit sandwiches, right? Um, I didn't I didn't know what the censor. Yeah, we're like explicit. We're explicit. We can say whatever we want to here. But so talk a little bit more about those shit sandwiches because I think this is like really really important for people to hear it. And you, I was going to bring this up whether you did or didn't. Um, you know, you had two many many people their dream is to get the Olympic trials, and now you've been to two different Olympic trials. You've had two races that most people would call shit sandwiches and and tell us a little bit about just the magnitude of those two races and i know scott having coached you for so long that maybe those aren't the two most important races that you've ever run and maybe they're not the two most important races that you have knowledge and experience from but they're definitely the two biggest races that your listeners will can conceive of Many of them have run the Boston Marathon. Many of them have run CIM. Many of them have run the Philadelphia Marathon. Many of them have run the races that you've run, but they have not run the Olympic trials, and they never will get a chance to run them. Will you give us a little bit of insight in terms of your experience dealing with the, the, that lack of success and how you plowed it into the next four years to get ready for the next Olympic trials and hopefully make an Olympic team, and then your experience after the 2000 um, 16 Olympic trials and that experience um, because I think it's while your experience at a really high level might not seem to be comparable to everyday runners I know that they're very similar and I would just love for our listeners to share to hear someone at your level talk about what those huge big race experiences command performance experiences that were negative influenced your training your thought process your racing um, and really why you're still in this game after six years as you said of of not necessarily having um, a slam dunk absolutely world-class uh, results so give us a little insight about what those difficult races have done for you yeah they were um they were both disheartening in very different ways um i think the 2016 trials hurt a lot more than the 2012 trials um the the main thing is you know you you spend so much time in, in this past case you know four years getting ready for something and uh I, I got the flu about eight weeks out from the olympic trials and it was the worst flu i mean i've never had the flu really per se but this was bad like i was pretty much in a bed for two weeks straight. I remember I tried to walk out to the mailbox and I kind of like passed out and fainted in the driveway. I mean, there's no way I was going to train. And in my head, I'm sitting there in the bed. Like I, I, I have to get up and run because I only have eight weeks. This is the most vital time of training, but um, it just wasn't going to happen and there's nothing I could do about it. So uh, I just kind of, you know, and then Steve was coaching me at the time. So, uh, you know, we were like, how do we, how do we do this? And he said, all right, well, you know, we're not going to make up for what we missed. We just have to, do what we can and prepare ourselves to the best of our ability. And unfortunately, the week before the Olympic trials, I got bronchitis and a sinus infection. So it was just not, that was not my year. 2016 was not my year. And <laughs> that was the one where I realized, you know what? All the training in the world, four years of really solid work, you got to have a little bit of luck too. And that's part of athletics, I think. I mean, you got to have the right call on a on an interception or a touchdown. You got to have you know the the wind at your back, so to speak, to get your Boston qualifier. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to go your way 
not just all the hard work. And I think I kind of realized that after 2016. Because before that, you know, after 2012, I was just ill-prepared. I mean, it's my own fault, but I kind of lost track or lost focus of, of the preparation I needed to do. And um, I, I showed up fit. I was definitely in shape, but I wasn't ready to run a marathon in 2012. And, um, you know, I ended up running about 17 miles of the marathon, not the whole thing, because my body shut down after that. I mean, I think I had one of the worst positive splits I've ever seen. I think every mile from 16 to 26 was at least 10 seconds slower, if not more. So, I mean, that's, that's pain right there, no matter what pace you're running. It, it's just every step gets harder and harder. And I realized after 2012, okay, you got to work harder. Like, you need to put in the mileage. You need to be ready next time. So you do that for four years, and then you get slapped in the face with all that illness, and it's like, oh, well, I did all the hard work, but I still didn't get to accomplish what I wanted to. What else can I do? And I've been pretty low after some of these marathons, just thinking, like, what else can I do? And even, you know, running Chicago a couple years ago, running Boston twice, I've, I've thought after these races, like, what else can I do to, to get ready? Because it just wasn't happening. And um, the disappointment was real. I mean, like, there's weeks at a time where I was, you know, inconsolable and, that's just part of the that's that's part of sport that's part of athletics it's part of life when you set a goal and then you don't achieve it that's some hardship right there i mean and um they both both olympic trials taught me a lot of different things Uh, one for one for sure is that if i run for 40 years and never make an olympic team i could still have an excellent excellent uh career and i think that's something i didn't realize until this past year when I, uh, when I had to drop out of the 2016 uh, trials because, uh, you know, I couldn't breathe. I remember I actually, I sneezed on Meb and I coughed on Galen Rupp at one point. And after that, I was like, you know what, I, I, I don't need to be here. Like, this is not where I should be right now. I can't breathe and I'm, I'm coughing on people in the race and I should not do this to them. So that was kind of when I had to stop it. But I realized, you know, there's so many other opportunities for you to succeed at, at running it, it for me, you know, and, and whatever it is, if, if your goal is a Boston qualifier, but you know, if you're still PRing across the, like along the way to get down to your Boston qualifier, those are, those are successes. Those are victories you need to celebrate, you know, and not making the Olympic team is awful or not even having a good race at the Olympic trials is awful, but having a good race at Boston for me is going to be my Olympics maybe. And I think it kind of made me realize there's a lot more out there, even in the world of professional running than just making an Olympic team. Um, but like I said, I mean, I've had some, I've had some pretty low, low times where I didn't know if I wanted to run anymore because after putting in six months of hard work and having a bad race, what's the point? Like, why am I doing this? And it took me a while to figure out, oh, this is why I'm doing it because I love it because I want to accomplish this because when I do get that piece of cake at the end, it's going to taste so much better after all these shit sandwiches, you know, like that's, that's the, the, driving force that I, that gets me up every day and gets me out the door to go run 20 miles. So it, it's, it, they all tell me a lot. And I mean, God, there's been so many ups and downs in the last six years that, um, you know, and I feel like every year I learn something new and then it's almost like I learned something contrary to that the year after it's, it's a never ending process. And, uh, it's, it's been a hell of a freaking ride, but, uh, yeah, I, I think both of those races I'll never forget any step of either of them. Um, I, I was listening to the podcast with Allison on it, and I know she said that 2012 trials was a little bit more special just because 
it was the first, and I think I definitely agree. It was not only my first trials, but it was my first marathon, and that I'll never forget. Um, that was a rude awakening. I mean, I got a I got a big slap across the face, and the marathon said, "Hey, uh, I ain't your mama, and you are gonna struggle today, and you're gonna struggle for the next six years." And that was kind of the start of it all. But it also, as much as it hurt that day, I fell in love with the marathon that day. There was no doubt about it. That was the day I knew I was gonna be a marathoner. So you got a little slice of cake in December to finish. A little, yeah. To, to finish twenty sixteen. I think I just got a lick of icing. In yeah, December. I know. I know you have bigger aspirations, but you ran a PR at CIM in two fourteen. You were top five, I think, fourth place. Is if I'm if I'm uh, remembering uh, right. Fifth, I believe. Fifth yeah. place. Uh-huh. So top five finish two fourteen. What do you attribute to? that success after sort of six years of up and downs you know, your last marathon PR was the 216 at Twin Cities a couple years ago and so you had kind of a dry spell in terms of meaningful steps forward do you consider the CIM a step forward and what would you attribute from a training sp- standpoint to that it was definitely a step in the right direction, and it was one that I knew was there. I, unfortunately, I just didn't know when it was going to come, and I think that's the case for a lot of runners of all levels is you know what you're capable of. You know what your dreams are, and, and sometimes you just don't know when it's going to come, and sometimes it takes six years, and, and for me, it did, and that was that was the moment I crossed that finish line, and I was like, all right, I know, I know that all of my beliefs in myself were true. Like, I, you know, I wasn't lying to myself. I am capable of this. And that was the biggest thing I took away. Um, Training-wise, it was just, honestly, mileage, mileage, mileage. Um, I've done so many different types of training. I think I've always been kind of a low-mileage guy. In high school, I only ran 40 miles a week. College was 50 to 70 miles a week. Uh, and under Steve, I ran from anywhere from 60 to 115 miles a week. But... I never did consistently high mileage. And for me, that 214 was all because I ran high mileage for a long period of time. I really didn't do any workouts. I just ran long a lot. I mean, I just got strong. I was, Steve, I think he always kind of pissed me off because he would say, well, Allison is a, is a mileage, you know, she's a, she's an aerobic beast, but you're just an aerobic midget. And I was always like, come on, man. Like, I got it in me, you know, but I never really ran the mileage, so I was an aerobic midget for a really long time, and um, this year changed that. I think the only thing I hadn't tried in training, like I said, I have done so many different types of training, um, and the only thing I really didn't try was just to run 120 to 140 miles a week for 10 weeks at a time, and I did that in October and November, and I was actually at uh, Altitude and Flagstaff for seven and a half of those weeks, and I think that's what did it for me. Um, it, it, I told a lot of people, like, yeah, I didn't really do a workout. A lot of people in Flagstaff were like, I don't think he's going to run too well because he hasn't done any workouts, but I just ran mileage all the time. I did maybe a couple of fart licks. I did maybe a couple of interval sessions, and my big thing was a lot of my long runs, I would close at, you know, close to marathon effort, and that was my workout for the week is, I did 20 miles, and the last six to eight miles was quick, and it was at altitude, and that was my workout for the week. Um, but yeah, mileage, mileage, mileage. That was the first time in my life I've ever run 125-mile averages for 10 weeks in a row, and it paid off. 
hugely. It was a two minute PR. So I mean, that speaks speaks wonders to me personally. That's awesome, man. So taking that experience and and knowing what you you know now. Um, having learned through college, post-collegiately, and now this period of time where you've been basically self-coached. Um, some of our listeners might remember um, a training group back in the day called Sexual Chocolate, right? Oh, um, yeah. And so you, you uh, might have had something to do with that group. Am I correct? I may have coached that group for an extended period of time there. Yeah, so you have experience taking your elite-level training and – using that experience to create your own training protocols and your own programs um, for that sexual chocolate group. So tell us a little bit about your experiences that you've learned and how you might translate those to a, a rogue group if you actually say sexual chocolate part two showed up here uh, in, in, in Austin, Texas. What, what ty- types of um, tips would you give them and maybe what kind of of approach would you take with them to allow them to have success given your recent success? Um, you know, uh, I think the way I always coached when I was coaching at Rogue is I took a lot of the training I did in college and applied it, you know, to, to whoever was in my group. And that's kind of the whole aspect of Rogue is, is that elite training for the everyday man or woman. You know, it's, it's, it's elite style, elite type of training for, for anyone who wants to try it and who wants to, you know, take a bite. And I think I would do a lot of the same things I did back then. We had a lot of success. A lot of people in our group would PR anywhere from the 5K all the way up to the marathon. And um, I differed their training a little bit depending on which race they were getting to. But I think nowadays I would just emphasize the church of the long run. You know, it's, it's, the, it's what you taught me and it's, it's what I – know for a fact works because I've seen it work. Um, when I truly got consistent with my long runs, that's when I turned the corner of that aerobic, you know, ability. Like it just became easier for me to cover the distance. And in the marathon, there's two aspects of it. You can finish it, right? And a lot of people can finish it. Some people, it's a lot harder for them to finish it. But if you do the training, you do the long runs, you get the mileage in, the consistency, then you're going to finish. And then at that point, it's just a matter of how fast do you finish it. But you can't work on that how fast do you finish it until you can actually run the 26 miles. And I think the only way you get to that is if you, you know, put in the miles, you put in the time on your feet. And um, I think so if I were to have a uh, sexual chocolate 2.0, we would definitely focus a little bit more on the uh, long run aspect of it. So I don't think we necessarily neglected it when I was uh, in Austin and you coach the original sexual chocolate, but I think that I would definitely emphasize that a little bit more now. You know, it's really interesting you brought up um, that statement, and you were coached by Terry Jessup for a little while, correct? Uh, not directly, but he was a, just kind of a, um, a friend of mine, and we, he, I always bounced ideas off of him for a long time, and I would go to his training camp. I mean, he's, he's, known, he's been such a successful coach in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It was hard to avoid, you know him when you were a good runner in that area so. yeah he had a he has a state a, a quote and I, I i i'm pretty sure it came from him that's at least who i give the attribution to every time because you know me i love quotes but his quote was you have to be fit enough to train um and Absolutely. and and that, that's sort of the idea that you're that you're talking about there is that at some point in time you've got to do all the basics you've got to do the things we talked about in our first podcast of you know basically lydiard type principles in order to get yourself to a place where you can start to look at um, being a little more creative and having more fun with the kind of quality workouts you throw in there. So thanks, man. That, thanks for sharing the whip with us. That's that was good stuff. Absolutely, yeah. 
you know, it's so funny. It's just happened to me recently because I, I started training again, obviously. Um, and uh, it was so freaking hard to get back into shape. I mean, I'm not even in shape yet, but just to get to where you could accomplish the training runs or complete the training runs, that took so long. And, you know, it's so funny. It boggles my mind every single time I come back from a race and I take a week off how hard it is to get back into running and there's always that switch it's like two or three weeks in when you just go for a run and you're like okay okay i feel a little bit better today like not everything hurts as much and that i just turned the corner literally two weeks ago and since then it's just been nothing but like awesome runs and it's amazing when that happens but you're right you have to be fit enough to actually accomplish the training or you have to be ready to train and that takes time unfortunately but once you're there you can really put in the work so Scotty, what's your most memorable running moment? Oh, man. Um, I would have to say either the first race I ever won, which was my first freshman cross-country race, or it's a tie with uh, the SEC Outdoor Track Championships my senior year at Arkansas. Um, The first race was just so special because I didn't know I was capable of winning a race. I'd never even been in the front of a race before. I mean, the closest I'd ever been was, I think I got second place to a, a, a buddy of mine, Keith Mahalapala, like at some seventh grade mile. And um, so we went into that first cross country race freshman year and my whole goal in life was just to be close to Keith Mahalapala. I was like, all right, this dude was a beast in middle school. He was so good. He ran like a five minute mile. All I want to do is just be close to him. And um, we started the race, and I remember we bottlenecked like into the woods, and all of a sudden I was in second place, and then I was next to the guy in the lead, and then all of a sudden I was in the lead, and I freaked out. I was so scared because I had never led a race in my entire life, so I just started sprinting, and we were one mile into this two-and-a-half-mile race, and I was in an all-out kick for the finish line because I was so terrified of getting passed. So um, I, I ended up winning that race, and I, I, you know that was something I'll never forget because it hurts so bad, but you almost could say it hurts so good because that was I realized how amazing winning feels, and for me that's a, that's a big part of running is is winning, and I think that was a big step in the right direction. Um, and then the SEC meet my senior year, I got the opportunity to help my team upset the University of Florida on their home track, and it was the coolest thing that's ever happened. Um, I tripled, and in three days, I ran the 10,000 meters, the 3,000 steeplechase, and the 5K. I scored 21 points and helped us win the uh, SEC championship. So that was a really, really special weekend that I will never, ever forget. So Cool, man. So um, tell us a little bit about what's next for you. So um, number one, sort of what's next in, on your race plate uh, coming up, and then sort of what you're looking at from a longer-term perspective now that you've seen a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel there for um, the last six years of work. Yeah, um, you know, the goals are, are still the same. You know, I, I know I'm capable of running 212 or faster in the marathon, so that will be my goal every time I line up in a marathon. And um, I think, you know, obviously I took a good step towards that. Uh, and two minutes is a lot to ask in, in the marathon, but I think that uh, with the the bulk of consistency and the, the mileage that I'm putting in, I think that's definitely doable. Um, next up for me is the New York City Half Marathon in March, and uh, that was pretty cool because uh, I've never had an opportunity to run that race, and it's always an elite stellar field of 
world champions and Olympians, and, you know, a lot of times it's a 204 guy who wins it, but uh, I'm super pumped to be a part of that field. And then um, I will be running my third Boston Marathon in April, so I can't wait to toe the line at Hopkinton again. And um, Steve and I, we always talked about how that course can suit me really well, so I'm really excited to actually race it, you know, being you know, having the mileage in my legs and see what I can actually do when I get to the top of heartbreak and, you know, actually be able to finish the race strong this time rather than limp home like I did the last two times. So, No Ryan Hall to beat this time, but we'll be cheering for you. It's true. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> All right, a couple of rapid-fire questions, then we'll wrap it up. Favorite, right. favorite race? Boston Marathon, coolest race in the world. Favorite running route or course so um i loved uh some of the loops in Austin, but uh i think right now my favorite i have a a crazy hilly 20 mile loop from my house and i live out in the woods in columbia and so everything around me is hilly dirt roads and um i've taken a couple of guys from columbia on this loop and i've made them cry it's just a <laughs> treacherous hilly awesome mountainous run and it's a gorgeous loop. I think it's a great Boston prep too. So I'm, I've been running it quite a few times, getting ready for April. What about a what about an Austin route? Oh, uh, Mount Vanel or Scenic are the two best. Absolutely, hands down, my favorite runs. And you can probably get both in on one run if you want. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> favorite post long run food. I always do an omelet. That's my go-to. I have, like, a power omelet. Put, uh, you know, three eggs. We get some turkey, some peppers, onions, broccoli. Um, sometimes we put some uh, some spinach in there and then a little uh, shredded cheese. I've gotten pretty good at making omelets, so that's my go-to post-long-run, post-workout meal. I love it. And we'll wrap it with one final favorite running quote. Uh, gotta go with Coach McDonald. You know, he's a, a big piece of today's uh, interview, but, uh, he used to say, um, everybody on the starting line wants to win the race, but the winner has to win the race. And I think that you can take, um, whether you're gonna win the race, but a lot of times he used to say, that doesn't mean crossing the finish line first. That means winning your own race, which means qualifying for Boston or getting a PR in the marathon or a half marathon. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can win your own race. And um, I love that quote because it's true. I mean, the guy who crosses the finish line first, he's the guy who wanted it most, most of the time. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. That's what I love about running. But um, it kind of encourages everyone, you know, win your own race and make sure you, you have to do what you're out there to do. Like you have to qualify for Boston. You have to, PR in the 5K. Those are your goals, and, and don't make it an option. Make it a choice. Don't just want it, need it. I love it. Yes. Awesome. Thank you, Scotty, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Thank Scotty. Thank you guys so much. I had a blast. Good chatting with you guys. Thanks. All right, we will wrap it there. This is Episode 9. We're going to finish it up. As always, you can check us out on Facebook forward slash Rogue Running or on Twitter and Instagram at Rogue Running, or just come see us in Austin. Until next time, Steve, we'll see you later, guys. Keep it real.